Good morning, and welcome to Bankery Christian Fellowship Church. Uh, my name is Duncan. I have the joy of serving as pastor here, and it's my privilege to welcome you to this place and to call you to worship the living God. Um, if you're a visitor here, please do make yourself known. Come and introduce yourself to me after the service. We have tea and coffee afterwards. You'd be very welcome to stay. It is a privilege of my role, as I say, to welcome and to call to worship. But in fact, when we come together like this, it's not really me who calls you to worship. It is ultimately God Himself. As our Creator and our Redeemer, God not only has the rightful ownership of each one of us, but He is the one who gives us our reason for living. He has made us to know Him, to trust Him, to love Him, to worship Him. And so today, it is God who calls us to worship. Hear His Word from Psalm 66. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of His name. Give to Him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds towards the children of man. I'm now going to invite Janet, who's going to come and read our Bible reading for today, which you'll find in Mark 5 and also printed in the diary you received on your way in. Thank you. Mark chapter 5, uh, verses 21 to 43, reading from the ESV. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. 
And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately, the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and told them to give her something to eat. So let's quieten our minds now and pray for the preaching of the word. Lord God, loving Heavenly Father, thank you for your eternal word. Thank you for the freedom we enjoy to read and share your word. We pray that you will speak through Duncan as he unfolds your word this morning. With the Spirit's enabling, may he help us to have discernment and understanding. And may we open our eyes to see the wonderful things in your law. May we listen carefully and hear what you have to say to each one of us. May we respond in our hearts so that we are obedient to you in our lives. We come to you and we ask all this in the name of our Lord and wonderful Saviour, Jesus. Amen. Well, please do take a seat and turn back with me to Mark chapter 5. Um, the Gospel of Mark is one of four Gospels in the Bible. They are accounts of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, this one, Mark's Gospel, is most likely the first of those Gospels to have been written somewhere around about 30 years after the events they describe. And if you're here today and you think that seems like a big gap 
between the events happening and someone writing them down. Well, just think of it like this. It would be like you or I writing about the events in the early 90s. And nobody here thinks that's a long time ago, right? It's recent. There is a strong tradition, and some of the features of the book would support this, that that Mark uh, wrote the Gospel of Mark. That's why they put his name at the top of it. But that he writes it based on the recollections of the Apostle Peter. And I mentioned last week, if you were with us, that in broad terms, Mark has quite a straightforward structure. First eight chapters or so, he's concerned to show us who Jesus is. He has authority in what he does, in what he teaches. We're supposed to ask questions as we see what Jesus does. Things like, well, what sort of person has authority over sickness and the wind and the waves and the evil spirits? Jesus is being shown to us to be the Messiah, the Son of God. And the second half of Mark's gospel shows us the mission of Jesus the Messiah, which will reach its climax in the cross and the empty tomb. And so you see here in chapter 5, we're still in that first part of Mark's gospel, and we're to ask of the text, what does this tell me about who Jesus is? If you were with us last week, we saw Jesus is the great restorer. Jesus had traveled across the sea out of the promised land to the land of the Gerasenes, and there he had met a man who was utterly helpless, possessed by literally thousands of evil spirits. Jesus cast them out with a word. He showed his power not just over the evil spirits, but power to destroy the evil spirits. The man who had been dehumanized by demons was restored to peace and dignity, and all through the work of Jesus Christ. Now, in our passage today, which follows on, Jesus comes back across the Sea of Galilee only to find again human helplessness. And Jesus shows himself in this part of Mark 5 to have power and authority over our greatest fears. Jesus is Lord over sickness and death. So you notice that when Jesus returns back to the west side of the sea, he is swamped, verse 21, by a great crowd And as you scan down the verses, Mark keeps mentioning this great crowd, verse 24, 27, 30, 31. And a crowd here is something that would very easily distract us. I suppose when the number of people in one place becomes large enough that you would describe it as a crowd, one of the things that happens is that you no longer really view them as individuals. They're just a crowd. But for all of the bustle of the crowd here, in this section of Mark's gospel, Jesus notices individuals, even though there is a crowd all the time that would be ready to distract and take away any attention on individuals. Jesus notices individuals. Individuals don't get lost in a crowd when it comes to Jesus. And the individuals here have heartbreaking stories of loss and despair. The scene that Mark set for us tells us something that we actually 
probably all already know to some degree, He shows us that life is painful and we're not in control. Life is painful and we are not in control. A man called Jairus appears, verse 22, and he knows that to be true. He's the leader of the synagogue, a man who has an important role running the local place of worship, a man who is important and respected in his community. But you notice here in verse 22, he's not so bothered about self-respect right now. He comes and he throws himself at the feet of Jesus and implores him earnestly, verse 23. He begs Jesus to help him. And who wouldn't want to help this man? Because he says, my little daughter is at the point of death. That little daughter, there's it's not technical language, it's emotional language. It's as if he comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, my lovely wee girl is at the end. That's what he says. My beautiful girl, she's at the end. And at the end of the story, verse 42, Mark lets us know that this precious daughter is only 12 years old. Now, we don't know any of the details, do we? But we know what we need to know. We have a heartbroken dad, a man who has some power, some responsibility, a man who's well-connected, a man who has respect in his community. I mean, four times in this passage, Mark calls him a ruler of the synagogue. And yet, none of that counts for anything in the face of losing his little girl. None of it can prevent what's happening before her eyes. And look at what Jairus believes of Jesus. He says to him, come and lay your hands on her so that she may be well and live. Or more literally, that she may be saved and live. And we're told Jesus goes with him. And it's exactly what we want Jesus to do, isn't it? When the man comes with this tale, oh, Jesus, you must go with him. And of course he does. But then Jesus is delayed along the way and the little girl dies. Just as Jairus has found someone who he believes can heal his beautiful girl, other people get in the way. And the way that Jesus is delayed is decisive. Can you imagine his frustration of seeing Jesus stop to speak to someone, trying to hurry him along? And Jesus just simply not getting there in time. I think it's safe to say Jairus knows life is painful and we are not in control. And the delay was because of someone tucked away in the crowd, someone else who knows that life is painful and we're not in control. Verse 25, a woman appears on the scene who has had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Now, again, we're not told the specific condition, but we're told everything that we need to know. This woman's suffering from a chronic illness, which, despite this woman doing all the right things, I mean, she visited the doctor, and then she visited another doctor, 
And when somebody said, oh, I know of another doctor, she visited him as well. But nothing got better. And in fact, Mark records for us that things only got worse. And now, 12 years down the line, she has spent everything that she has in the hope of finding a cure. And all she is is poor and sicker than she's ever been. Chronic bleeding would surely make her anemic. She lives with constant tiredness and fatigue. It makes her susceptible to other illness. But there's a social and there's a spiritual element to this as well. She lives in a Jewish community. God's law teaches that bleeding makes someone unclean. And so, this has excluded her from the place of worship. And an unclean person was to stay away from others because, well, they might pass on their uncleanness. This is a debilitating condition for this woman in every conceivable way. Life for her is painful, and she's not in control. And if you live long enough, then this lesson comes to you, doesn't it? No exceptions, none. And some here today have known the desperation that these people knew. Because nothing highlights our impotence, our weakness as human beings, quite like death does. Many of us have sat at that bedside waiting for the inevitable, finding that there was no intervention, not even any prayer, no tears that would stop the march of death. And then there's chronic illness. And for those who suffer, it is often the first thing on their mind when they wake up in the morning and will be the last thought they have before they close their eyes at night. Chronic pain, chronic treatment with miserable side effects. For others, hearing the words, there's nothing more we can do. But add into that so much more in our world, never-ending wars, natural and man-made disasters, or simply even the pain of broken relationships. Friends, what we're being given a glimpse of here in Mark 5 is something we all know. Life is painful, and we're not in control. But is that all we can say? Is that all we can say? Let's not forget that Mark wrote this gospel so that we would do more than weep with those who weep but that we might see Jesus. And he shows us that for all of this despair, the touch of Jesus is greater. The touch of Jesus is greater. You see, for the woman in the crowd, she's convinced. You see that in verse 28? If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. Or again, literally, I will be saved. And when she reaches out to touch Jesus, you know, Mark has this favorite word that he uses throughout this gospel, and here it is, immediately. That's what he says. Immediately, the flow of blood dried up, and she felt, or she knew in her body that she was healed of her disease. The touch of Jesus is decisive for her. 
And you see that when Jesus arrives in Jairus' home, down there in verse 41, and he comes to this precious girl who's died, taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking. We must not allow what might be our familiarity with Jesus' miracles to take away from the strength of what this gospel message is saying to us about Him. These great enemies that stalk humanity, the enemies of sickness and of death, they exist in our world because of sin. The Bible tells us that, that Adam and Eve, the first humans, they rebelled against God and found that God's warning was accurate. To turn away from Him, to sin, would mean death. And the world is now out of kilter with humanity because it's tainted with sin. And the consequences? Exactly what you see in Mark 5 and all around us. Disease and death have become the natural order of things. Now Jesus has come. This is God's appointed rescuer, the rescuer of humanity and the rescuer of the whole world, the whole created world. And so it's the case that for Him too, sin and, dis and disease and death are His enemies. He has come to destroy them. And this episode that Mark records is a glimpse of Jesus' worthiness to do just that. You see, Jesus is never one who simply talks a good game. He really does have the authority and the power to conquer these enemies of mankind. And so you notice, don't you, that He doesn't give the bleeding woman a course of antibiotics and tell her to rest for two weeks. Simply she touches him and immediately she's restored. Jesus doesn't perform CPR on the dead girl, but takes her hand and speaks and immediately she's restored. Much like the evil spirits that we saw last week, disease and death, they're terrifying for us. We struggle against them and yet for Jesus, there is no contest whatsoever. The touch of Jesus is greater. And that's because He truly is Lord over sickness and death. Now, this is all well and good. You see, I can, I can, I can tell what you're thinking. This is all well and good. Now, there's lots of people in this room who follow Jesus, and their chronic pain hasn't been taken away. Their loved ones haven't been brought back. Is this just a feel-good story because from time to time we need to hear a story that has a happy ending? Can't Jesus do this for me too? It is a key question. The first words that Jesus speaks in Mark's gospel are found in Mark 1 verse 15. He says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand or the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the gospel. 
Jesus came declaring that God's kingdom was near. He had come to bring in God's perfect rule over the world. And what we see in Jesus' miracles is like lightning bolts of God's kingdom breaking into the world. There's a foretaste here of what Jesus has come to do, reversing the tide of sickness and of death. But here it's only a glimpse. And I say it's only a glimpse because the 12-year-old girl, I assume, would grow up, but would one day die. The woman healed of her bleeding, she would one day die. We mentioned earlier that the cause of sickness and death is at its core sin in the world. And if Jesus has come to eradicate sickness and death, then he must deal with this core issue, with sin. And there is his mission. Jesus would lay down his life to be nailed to a cross and to be killed And he himself would describe that mission as him laying down his life as a ransom for many, laying down his life as a payment in the place of others. There Jesus takes on himself the sins of his people. There he bears the consequences of a sinful, broken world. It's at the cross where we see Jesus decisively turn the direction of the world around. Through his death, he brings life. And so the fruit of that, what Jesus has provided for all who will trust in him, is first of all forgiveness of sins. He gives his spirit to dwell within the one who trusts in him. He gives a new heart with new desires and new abilities to live a life that honors him. And he gives a future hope that his kingdom will come in in all of its fullness when he returns. And we're to be sure of that because Jesus didn't stay dead, but he rose again. And that resurrection is the promise to all who belong to him that they too will be raised. And so these foretastes of this great kingdom that is coming in, they are throughout Jesus' ministry. And hey, sometimes he gives us those foretastes today. But here is the certain promise that comes through Jesus. Everyone, now hear me well, everyone who belongs to Jesus is promised healing and resurrection and a life and a world free from sin. And that promise will be fulfilled for everyone who belongs to Jesus when he returns and brings in his kingdom in all of his fullness. Until then, this reality remains, doesn't it? Life is painful, and we're not in control, but we are trusting in the one who is greater than life's pain. Now, this passage, it has something to say to us about how we then must come to Jesus. These stories really are pictures of what it means to have faith in Christ. 
You notice that specifically in verse 34, the woman is told, your faith has made you well. And again, literally, your faith has saved you. Now, we live in a world… Hang on, never mind we live in a world. Christians are often confused about what faith is. There are lots of mixed up ideas about this. For example, uh, there is the faith healer Uh, who would encourage people to come, um, or perhaps even would encourage someone like Jairus to come, to bring his sick child with the promise of healing. And of course, the faith healer is always the one who can do no wrong, so that when the child leaves in the same wheelchair that the child came in with, the healer can say, well, you weren't healed because you didn't have enough faith is that what we mean by faith? Is that what Jesus is pointing us to here? Or take a more common one, someone who perhaps was raised going to a good church, and if you were to ask them now if they have faith, they would say, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. I believe He died on the cross for our sins. I believe he rose from the dead. But this person hasn't been in church for years, has recently moved in with his girlfriend, and lives day to day without a single thought for Jesus Christ. Is that what faith is? Simply believing facts about Jesus. This passage is so helpful for us because it shows us there are two important aspects of faith. First, the woman who is healed, her experience shows us that true faith is believing Jesus is for me. True faith is believing Jesus is for me. So, the woman, first of all, hears the report about Jesus. We're told that in verse 27. And she does not settle for knowing and believing things about Jesus she acts upon what she hears. She's heard of His miracles, of the evidences of His identity, and she dares to believe that He is a Savior for her. Her confidence is entirely in Him. I mean, how else could you describe her believing that if she just touches His clothes, she'll be healed? It's not not because she thinks the clothes are special, but it's because of she's come to understand who he is. And if I simply just touch his clothes, then surely that will be enough because of who he is. She believes what she has heard of Jesus. And when she comes with this kind of faith, not only is she healed, but Jesus notices her. She is not a nameless face in the crowd for Jesus. He can tell, verse 30, power has gone out from him. He knew this woman had touched him in faith. And Jesus encourages her when she comes forward. So many years she's been isolated from her community. She falls down before him and she tells the whole story. He calls her daughter. Your faith has made you well. Now, we know that her faith on its own was not what had healed her. And I say that confidently because we're told in the passage that she had faith in doctors, multiple doctors, 
and that that faith in itself was not enough. No, it is the object of faith that counts, the thing you're trusting in. Her faith was only the means through which she was meaningfully and savingly connected to Jesus. And we recited these words together. What is faith? It is a firm confidence that not only to others, but also to me, God has granted forgiveness of sins, and so on. Faith is believing Jesus is a Savior for me. And here today, I suppose, only you know your own history. Only you know the burdens that you carry and how easy it is for you to think that Jesus Christ could never be a Savior for you. The Apostle Paul, when he wrote about it, he always seemed to be amazed. He spoke of how Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. He was amazed that Jesus Christ could save a sinner like him. But this is the message that comes to us from the Gospels, is that Jesus has come to save to save sinners, even a sinner like you. And the only way you will ever be convinced of that is when you look away from yourself and see Jesus clearly. Because when I look at myself, when I see my sin, then I can never imagine how God could have anything to do with me. But when you're given the eye of faith to see the grace and the loveliness of the compassionate Jesus, then you will know that He will receive you. Yes, even you. One more thing. At first glance, in this account, Jesus appears to make a blunder. Um, if you um, go into A&E, uh, once you've had a long wait, you then are sent to triage, where a nurse will assess how urgently you need attention. And we understand that, don't we? Um, the most urgent cases need to be dealt with first, and it's right that someone works out who the most urgent cases are. Now, when Jesus stops to speak to the woman who had been healed of her bleeding, and not just to speak to her, but to seek her out, he stops in his tracks it's not like anyone was trying to stop him. He's on his way to Jairus' house. He stops in his tracks and he says, well, who touched me? And it's all to speak to this woman. And it's as if Jesus' triage system has failed. Because a young girl is a way to die. The woman who's bleeding, surely she can wait a few more hours. Because yes, for this woman, 12 years is a long time to be ill. But for this girl, 12 years is a tragically short time to live. What must it have been for Jairus to receive the news in verse 35? Someone comes from his home, your daughter is dead, why trouble the teacher any further? Heartbreak, anger, despair, and the message in his ear is, there is nothing that Jesus can do for you now. You're too late. But then Jesus speaks. And in verse 36, he says to the grieving man, do not fear, 
only believe. What's the more compelling thing? The fact that his beautiful girl is dead or that Jesus has told him to believe. And that's taken further for us, more specific actually, when you come to the house and verse 39, Jesus says, the child is not dead but sleeping. And Jesus hasn't even seen the girl yet. It's clear, I think, that Jesus isn't doubting that she's dead, but it's clear that he's saying this girl is not going to stay dead. The mourners, it says, laughed at him. And maybe a better word would be they ridiculed him. They thought that what he was saying was preposterous. And we can all understand why. What are they supposed to believe? What they can see with their eyes? Or what Jesus says that contradicts it? You see, we learn here that faith is believing Jesus' words above all. Faith is believing Jesus' words above all. The mourners couldn't accept Jesus' words because the reality just seemed too compelling. But the one who has faith has learned that Jesus' words are always true, always authoritative, always reliable, so that even if everything seems stacked against Jesus' promises, they remain his cast-iron guarantee that you can trust. We thought of one situation already. I just seem to be too sinful for God to save me. Jesus says, all who come to me, I will never turn away. He who believes in me has eternal life. We look at how opposed so many people are to the message about Jesus, and we wonder what good could possibly come from me trying to share the gospel with them. And God says to us, faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. God says, this is how I am going to bring people to faith. We see how broken our world is, We see wickedness is rampant, and we despair that things could surely never be different to what it is. And God says that He will dwell with His people in a restored world. And this is what He says, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And we look with our eyes at the world around us, we see the pain that life brings and how we are not in control of it, and so much would scream at us, how could this ever be? But God's Word stands firm. Faith is believing Jesus' words above all else, even and especially when bare sight alone would tell us to believe something else. And for Mark, presenting Jesus to us as the great restorer, as the Lord over sickness and death, he is showing us that here is someone you can trust, someone you must trust, you must believe that He's a Savior for you. Take Him at His Word. Build your life upon His Word. Then we know, even if and when sickness and death come, that we remain in the hands of the One who made the universe. 
and who is moving every part of this universe towards one great goal, to a restored world where the Lord over sickness and death will have banished them forever. And He calls us to trust Him. And Mark shows us that there is no more trustworthy person in the universe than Jesus Christ. And as he does so, he calls everyone who reads to trust him with the kind of faith that would say, even if I just, even if I just touch his garment, the kind of faith that would say, even though what I see with my eyes might cause me to despair, yet I will trust the word of Christ. And when we come to him in that way, we find him. We know him. We're cleansed and saved by him. We ask it in his name. Amen. Well, to close our service, we're going to stand and we're going to sing the words of the doxology. And you will know this to the tune. You'll recognize the tune. We're just going to sing this once through and let this be our final word um, as we close our service. Let's stand together.